You're listening to the Social Spectrum Podcast with Gina Galliotto. Here we prove that success on social media and in entrepreneurship is not one size fits all and discuss thriving online through the lens of different personality types, lifestyles, and neurodiversity. Success lives on a spectrum, so your impossible search for the one right way to grow your online business ends here. On the Social Spectrum Podcast, we'll unfold your right way instead. Let's dive in. Alrighty. And we are back on the Social Spectrum Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we have a super special guest and a longtime mutual of mine, Dr. Ben Ryan. Hi, Ben. What's going on, Gina? Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, yeah. We're super excited to pick your brain. And for those of you who don't know yet, Ben is a neuroscientist and also the content creator behind Dr. Brain on TikTok and Instagram. And on his channels, he explains the brain but without all the mumbo jumbo. So he makes us understand it instead of it being this complex, confusing thing so that we can leverage it. So, and with almost a million followers across his channels, his videos help make science accessible to everyday people. So yeah, super excited to have you. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate what you're doing and, you know, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about neuroscience and social media and where those things intersect and where they don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to let the listeners in today, we're going to pick Ben's brain about what may be going on in our brains whenever we do post and scroll on social media, how we may be able to use that information to succeed on socials, empathy or lack thereof actually on social media and ways to keep our brains healthy and more. So before we do get into it though, Ben, can you give the listeners the same disclaimer that you gave me about neuroscience and social media? Yeah. So for background, so Gina reached out and said, you know, it'd be really cool to do an episode about science, the science of social media and what we know about the brain. And I said, I completely agree. That sounds really cool. The only problem is there's very little research out there. And I, it's kind of a growing field, I suppose. It's it's in the very early stages, I would say. There are a couple of papers out, but it's sure to, I would say, expand in the next couple of years. And uh, I actually personally hope to be a part of that. It's It's a personal research interest of mine that I would like to pursue long term. But yeah, there's there's not a whole lot to concretely discuss. So there are some things where I will kind of explore conceptually a little bit and share some thoughts and some theories that I have. So just sort of a general disclaimer that not everything you hear on this episode is scientifically empirically backed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, theoretical discussion for now, until we get some research behind this. So I mean, social media has been so popular for so long. Why do you think this was a neglected subject until recently. I'm glad to hear that you think it won't be for much longer. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the the kind of nature of social media has sort of changed recently. At least it feels like it. I mean, I've been on social media for a long time, not as a creator, just as a user. And, you know, I remember the days of MySpace and Facebook. And (laughs) those are like really the truest form of social media, I guess, where you almost like hosted your identity on a web page. Like I'm thinking of MySpace where it was like you put your favorite music and you put your favorite quotes and whatever. And and you pretty much like your whole page was just like about yourself. Like, oh, I took a survey with 200 questions and here's everything about my personal like identity. And you'd interact with people in that way. Whereas now it's shifting where it's, it's like kind of like this weird, like gigantic group campfire where everyone's like kind of sitting around watching society transpire where things happen and memes go viral. And everybody's just kind of like holding hands around like this giant, black hole of like media and it's weird and everybody's experience is different where they're shown individual things that you know other people like them are shown and these recommendation algorithms are changing and it's becoming more addictive in a way you know like it's it's becoming more tailored to like act on these reward circuits rather than just being like oh i want to check out my friends virtually and i think that that comes with a lot of problems potentially you know, it certainly it certainly changes the way that we interact with our devices and with one another. I think that we've started to see some of the big problems arising from that with things like misinformation and in disinformation and, you know, fighting on the internet and fraud and deep fakes and all sorts of this stuff happening that it's really kind of exploding in a way that's kind of fascinating and like almost feels catastrophic. <laughs> but maybe that's just me. No, I I absolutely understand. And I do understand why now more than ever, people would be looking into this. And I think it's interesting, because my mind couldn't help but go here. Maybe I'm just a pessimist. But as the science comes out around this stuff, it's like, 
I think people are going to be able to use it to protect themselves when using social media. But then also, I'm thinking like marketing and big companies being able to leverage it, which obviously they already are. So it's kind of going to be like this double edged thing. And so yeah, I'm excited to see like what comes up as as more studies are done. Yeah, I mean, I was actually just before this, I was kind of, you know, preparing my mind a little bit and reviewing some of the some of the papers that are out. I was struck by this impression that everything that's out there is essentially, or at least all the papers that I've read are just like all very negative, actually, um, as far <laughs> yes. as like the impact on the brain and, and on well-being and things like that. Like, I, I don't think any of them were like, hey, it's actually good for you. Like, none of them said anything like that. They were all kind of looking at the, the downside, which I do think there are upsides. But yeah, and I think it's good because the, the research should immediately initially be drawn to the downside so that we can understand the potential risks associated with the thing. And then, you know, eventually, hopefully fine tune it so that it's more productive and positive for society instead of being a kind of a bane. Exactly, for sure. Because it's so much about how we use it, that makes it either a negative or positive impact, I think, on us. And so the more we understand, the more we can use it to our advantage instead of our I don't even know how to explain it instead of to our failure or to, you know, hurt us essentially. And I know you were talking a lot about misinformation and society in general on social media and how we behave. And so in our emails, when we were talking about this, you mentioned that there is like this broken relationship between society and science. And I really liked the way that you said that. So do you think that social media has played a role in that relationship? Has it hurt it? Has it helped it? I think both. I like to think that at least like what I'm doing on a tiny little scale is helping it. You know, I think it's important for scientists to be on the internet behaving in a way that is non-scientific to to, <laughs> to put it one way. You know, I think like it's good to just be like, I'm not sure for anyone who's, if you're not watching this, I'm not sure if the video is going to be posted, but I'm wearing a t-shirt right now. And like, that's actually something I do intentionally, because I don't want to be sitting here in a lab coat in a laboratory with beakers sitting around me, you know, like, I, I think that it's, it helps this, the relationship between science and society when people can identify scientists as just like a dude that you'd sit next to at the bar, versus like this weird freakish, like old white man, which is <laughs> traditionally <laughs> how people, you know, how scientists are presented. But it's, but it's also interesting, because I was actually just at a sort of a seminar workshop kind of thing at Stanford yesterday. And we were talking about this exact question of like, how does the public perceive science? And, and I, they actually shared something that I hadn't thought about before, which is that like, think about like the Big Bang Theory, or um, like any other show that like revolves around scientists, it presents it as very individualistic, where it's like, there's one person who's just like, studying this thing. And like one day they go into work, and they do a single experiment, and they come home, and they're like, I did the experiment, and it worked, which means that unequivocally, this is true and nothing else can be possible. And it's like, that's not really how science works. And they kind of presented this example as like, people don't really get a fair representation of how science actually works. And so therefore, people don't really understand science. And so I think it's important for people to engage with like real science and not just Hollywood science. And so I, I think in that way, it's it's useful to kind of congregate groups that normally wouldn't interact. But Generally, as I mentioned with you, and you were talking about how I said that science is broken from society in a way, you know, another term I like to use is that science has essentially moated itself. Like we've built a moat of peer reviewed paywalls, you know, journals with paywalls and jargon. And we've sort of like, and I don't like to, I'm not taking responsibility for this. I disagree with this. So when I say we, <laughs> I mean the field, but we kind of like shoved the, the public out of science and been like, if you want to understand this, you have to pay for it. And then you have to get a PhD so you can understand it and read it. And I, and I really don't think that's good at all. And so I think by the nature of the design of the scientific enterprise, people have been sort of shunned for, and, and made to feel like they don't belong within scientific discussions. And so I think that a lot needs to be done to change that. And, you know, I, again, I do my part by just sort of like doing things like this, like hopefully one person will listen to this podcast and feel like, you know what, I actually kind of changed my mind about scientists or maybe by openly saying that <laughs> I just ruined it. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That psychological effect. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm positive that people are going to run over to your page. Because, you know, like you were saying, you hope that your impact of getting on here or on TikTok or social media and talking about it does bridge the gap a little bit between society and scientists. And it does like I'm I'm proof because I've followed you for a while. And I love it so much. I, I get like, 
just such brain satisfaction out of watching your content and other scientists, of course, like Hank Green, of course, and a few astronomy pages I follow. And so the thing that I love about social media, even though, unfortunately, I see just as much misinformation, if not more, (laughs) I do love that I wouldn't even have known I was interested in these things if I didn't stumble upon the content. And so it opens up this world of wanting to learn about it. And it really does bridge the gap. Like it, it is, it's a meaningful thing. So, well, thank you for sharing that. And, yeah. and I'm also excited to hear what you said because I've actually written about this. Um, I have a paper that's in peer review right now. It's a scientific paper where I talk about this exact idea that, like, historically, science has sort of struggled to connect with society. These barriers exist systemically in the way science infrastructure works with publishing and stuff that, like I said, the science is kind of, ex- or this public is kind of excluded. But, like, for when we scientists want to connect with the public, how do we do that? And I actually kind of argue that things like TikTok and Instagram, because they have these recommendation algorithms are actually like the perfect tool because we can do exactly what you said. We can put up a video on the internet about, you know, SSRIs and depression. Do they work? How do they work? And then someone out there who has been dying to know the answer to this and doesn't know where to look and doesn't know who to trust, it pops up on their feed and all of a sudden they're like, am I interested in neuroscience? Maybe I'm a little interested in neuroscience <laughs> and psychology and psychiatry. And then, yeah. and it's just like the, the algorithm finds people and connects them with these topics. And so the way I kind of put it is that we, it, it offers some sort of unprecedented access to those who are self-selected for being interested in science without really like knowing it beforehand. And so that's, that's a value of society or of, I'm sorry, that's a value of social media for the relationship between science and society. That's really interesting because I actually, when I was saying it, I really didn't think about it also on like an algorithmic level, almost like the algorithm knows you're interested before you even know you're interested, which is a little scary, but (laughs) a little bit like we've talked about a little bit beneficial and cool. So yeah, I I like to talk about both sides, obviously. And so this conversation is really cool because there's not really going to be a right or a wrong, you know, it's going to be that in the middle. So yeah. And actually going back, there was a study where they showed they they had a sample of 208 people or 200 about 200 people and about 150 of them claimed to use TikTok and then they took all of them and they either showed them a personalized video feed or a general video feed so you know like what the algorithm would think they want or just random feed of videos and what they found was sort of unsurprisingly the, the this one brain area called the ventral tegmental area, which produces dopamine, which is it's very involved in like reward and like motivated seeking of things that we like. That brain area was more activated in the personalized video feed condition. So when watching these custom videos, they get more. There's a brain signal that would indicate a greater sense of reward and, and motivated seeking. And so bringing this back to the algorithm and your initial question of why social media is recently becoming something that may be studyable or, you know, worth studying is this exactly is that suddenly our relationships with our phones are, are becoming something that could actually have potentially like addictive liability and that they, the, these algorithms are intentionally doing something that activates the reward systems in your brain. And so it could be risky for certain people. And there are things like gambling disorder or gaming disorder, things like this, And now they are starting to explore like social media use disorder. And so this is a new really like, I think this is sort of the um, head of the torpedo, if you will, of the research. It's like, if this is addictive, we should really know about it. And recently, the Surgeon General issued a warning about social media for children. And, you know, is it it really that terrible for you? Depending on how you use it, you know, I think, but at the very least, it is certainly captivating and attention grabbing and has the a great potential to distract you from things that may be more important, like going to work or like spending time with family or sleeping, especially. That's a big one, too. There are studies showing that greater social media use is associated with lower sort of mental health and well-being. And they could actually trace that to a change in sleep and that people were basically staying up all night on their phones instead of sleeping. And it may not be the it may be the social media itself. Or it may be that they're not sleeping, but in either case, they're feeling worse in general. And so that's, again, you know, why is someone going to stay up all night watching social media? Well, because it activates the reward systems in their brain and they find it pleasurable. So this all kind of ties into this like interesting research environment about this. But, you know, I hope that we go a lot deeper in the coming years. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's why I want. And that's so weird because I think this has come up in all of my podcast episodes so far, but I love 
having conversations where it comes down to intention because there's so much like perspective that goes into it to make one thing be seen from so many different angles. Like for example, my explanation of how I found out that I even liked learning about science in the first place through social media, that for me now is intentional. Now I like to open TikTok to learn much more than anything else. And so by doing that intentionally, my feed shows me almost all educational content. And so it's like you can tailor your experience to be more positive, you know, or you can, it can be the detriment of you and you can really dig yourself into a hole. And going back to like the dopamine, just so that we all understand and again, can leverage it in a positive way. Can you just give us like a little breakdown how we may understand of how the brain works whenever we are like consuming social media or even posting on social media? Yeah. So there's a lot, This and this is more sort of theoretical now, I will say. I mean, it's interesting because Social media really does come down to like a sense of reward. You know, I do, I do. And it's sort of like everything does, right? Like going to a fundamental basic level, like dopamine is a neurotransmitter. That's kind of like a key signal in the brain for like what I'm experiencing right now is like feels good or is valuable. And so, you know, if you're hungry and suddenly a candy bar appears, there's going to be dopamine release in certain parts of your brain. And, And the reason for that is it's actually like a learning signal so that your brain can remember like where was I when that candy bar appeared because the next time I'm hungry I'm going to go to that place and hopefully a candy bar will appear you know and that's a stupid example because candy bars don't actually just appear that makes sense (laughs) a better example might be if you're a a animal in the wild and you find berries you know and it's like okay now I need to remember this spot because berries grow here so it's really sort of a, a learning signal but the thing is like it can be essentially hijacked by things like addictive drugs like cocaine for instance which acts directly on the dopamine system and can rewire air quotes your dopamine systems that you crave this immediate release of dopamine induced by cocaine so on social media you know there's there's two sides of it i think there's a personal like on an everyday use of social media like for example i think of the way i used to use social media and many people still who i know still use it like instagram let's say a couple of years ago you go on vacation you get a couple of good pics you put them up the, you put up the pictures and you're like what's up everyone i'm in aruba look at how cool i am you know and it's like that's sort of like how it kind of started and there's certainly some reward from that because like why would you do that unless it was rewarding and i think it's yeah self gratifying a little bit yeah it's it's pleasant to show the world that you're doing cool things it's fantastic when you get 500 likes and you're like, whoa, you know, this is cool. It's just like, there's, there's all these like little tiny rewards, like every single like, every single comment, it's all built in every single share. But, you know, I think that's all changing with these algorithms and stuff. And now as a creator, it's different. And, you know, I, when I first started posting videos, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember being like really hooked on the feeling of social media success. You know, like I used to post my videos at night on TikTok. And I would post them and on TikTok, especially you're, you know, it could go any direction. You could get a million views, you could get 500 views, you know, it could go, it could go anywhere. And so I would post it and then I would lay up in bed and I would be thinking, oh, I wonder how it's doing. You know, I've got to check it. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd roll over and I'd grab my phone and I'd look <laughs> and, you know, and I would like respond to a couple of comments and like, I'm going to engage to make it do better. And, you know, there's this really strong motivational dopamine, seemingly dopamine component to it from both sides, you know, not only consuming content, but also posting content. And there's data showing that the amount of time we spend on our phones is on the rise. I think it's up to like on average 4.6 hours a day or something. It's that's like crazy. That's a lot that really of time. Is crazy. It is. It's a lot. And of that's time. an average. Mm-hmm. I know that I spend more than that on some days. That's a fact. I, I mean, it's so. a little different since it's a part of my job, but still I could see, I could see the everyday person doing it as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And so is the habit loop a fair like way to kind of simplify what's happening with the dopamine being the reward and then like the cue being maybe your phone buzzing or even just seeing your phone in general. Okay. And that's what's happening. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think the way that I tend to think about social media use is like, especially like, let's think about the, the feeling of you're on your phone, you're laying in bed, you're on TikTok, let's say. And I think it's like you see the introduction of a video and it's pretty much like a lottery poll or like a, a, what's it called? Like a slot machine poll where it's like, is this going to be interesting? Am I going to get something? And I think there's like this kind of like expectation where you're like, 
the buildup of like, oh, this is exciting, or maybe you get the reward immediately. Like there are basically studies showing that when you put like a mouse in a in a box where they can like press a lever or like a cue, like a tone is played, and then right after the tone, they get a like a food reward or something or like a little sucrose pellet. And basically like the, the levels of dopamine that are released kind of go through these like little changes where like after the cue, there'll be like a release in dopamine. And if the reward doesn't appear, then like dopamine goes lower than it was before. And so I think that like every swipe is just like another slot machine pull where it's like, is this going to be cool? And if it's not, and you're like, boo, this sucks. Then you're like dopamine like drops and you swipe and you get something fun again. And it like comes back up. And it's just like, this is very crude. Like, you know, does this actually happen? We have no idea, but this is just me sort of like conceptualizing the experience of it. And I think that like, have you ever had it where you're scrolling and you get a bad video and you're like, boo, this stinks. You swipe again, you get another bad video and you're like, this stinks too. You get a swipe another, you get another bad video and you're like, forget it. And you exit the app completely. Mm-hmm. Does, has that ever happened to you? I feel like. Yeah, for sure. That happens because to Because you're not me. satisfying the like reward or the dopamine. Got it. Yeah. And I think in that moment, it can maybe even become a little bit aversive where you're like, I just wasted 10 whole seconds of my time. <laughs> you know, what a horrible shame. And, it, you know, people get frustrated. And I've had this happen on my videos where I post it, I make a video that's like two minutes long and which is, you know, long for TikTok. And I'll say like, just bear with me. Like, this is going to be really interesting. Trust me, like just follow along. And then at the end, I like, there's like this big kind of like tie together and people are like, I hate you. <laughs> like you made me <laughs> stay for this whole video and it wasn't as satisfying as I expected. And I will never be tricked by you again. I had a lot of people comment that. And then I also had people be like, this was totally worth it. I really love this, like amazing video. And it's just funny how like, how tied we get to our, like these little experiences we have on our phone. And like, we get so emotionally invested. And, you know, for those who weren't satisfied, maybe it was this drop in dopamine or something else where they felt, you know, disappointed. And those that were satisfied, it was this like rise in anticipation. And then the payoff was satisfying. And they were like, well, you know, beautiful. Thanks so much for my great two minutes of my life. You know, it's, it's just so funny to think about these little miniature like experiences. Oh, that's, that is so interesting. The way that you explained that really got my brain like tingling and going because I mean, obviously I think everyone listening could relate to like that behavior on social media in general and those feelings, but none of us are super conscious about it, obviously. And the more conscious we can get about it, the more intentional we can be. And also, and not in any type of like manipulative way to manipulate the brain, but rather to like find your people. I think it also says a lot, especially the lottery uh, analogy about capturing the right person's attention and following through as far as succeeding on social media and finding your right people, building the right community. So that's an interesting takeaway that neuroscience can help you possibly succeed on socials. <laughs> yeah. And I, think I love that takeaway. <laughs> especially with the follow through. I think, you know, I, I think everybody mm-hmm. knows that, you know, like a basic fundamental ingredient to being successful on social media is being interesting and mm-hmm. capturing their attention right off the bat. You know, you can't, you can't start your video and say, in this video, I'm going to explain how the brain works with dopamine when you're scrolling on social media. And you're not going to believe it because it's so surprising. Like you can't just draw it on and on and on like that. You got to get right to the point. And I think that's a key ingredient because if, you know, if you give them even just a moment, if you give the viewer even just a moment of dissatisfaction, that's probably enough for them to disengage and go on to the next. But yeah, absolutely following through, I think is really key because if you can leave them satisfied, then they're more likely to probably view your content in the future. And and like I said, dopamine is essentially a learning signal. So if they learn to associate that your content makes them feel good, then they're probably more likely to seek your content or engage with it when it appears on their feed. So yeah, not being disappointing is also important. Because I see a lot of those videos where it's like 10 foods you must avoid. And then it's like, they go through one of them. And then it's like, all right, now watch parts two through 10 to see the others. And it's like, oh, man, like, what a disappointment. I'm not spending all my time on this. Like, it's just don't, you know, follow through, like you said. Yep, exactly. That That's really valuable. That's an awesome takeaway. I really like that. And also, it does encourage us as creators to push ourselves and to actually provide value on socials and to not just post for the metrics. But it also does lead into a conversation just as far as disappointed followers to hate comments. <laughs> so I would love to pick your brain since we're talking about that, about why people are such assholes on social media. <laughs> yeah, if you wouldn't mind 
I would actually love to hear about your experience. I mean, do you oh, experience sure. a lot of hate and you know harassment and mean? So, comments? what's really nice is I've gotten through almost two years with next to no hate comments. And then on Instagram, I had a brand start whitelisting my content. So they put like millions of views, put it out to a bunch of people. And on Instagram, for some reason, I get a lot of men telling me to get a real job. <laughs> and then what's so funny is right before I started the podcast, I posted an ad or they whitelisted an ad that was a little bit sped up. And I got all of these hate comments about my voice. And I was like, I'm about to start a podcast. Oh. <laughs> like, I now I'm getting all these hate comments about my voice. I'm now I'm scared. But yeah, I have been fortunate really to avoid it on TikTok, which has been great. Usually if it's hate comments, it's gonna be get a real job or like I'm lying about money talk or anything like that. What about you? Do you experience a lot of it? Oh my goodness. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh-huh. being a it's scientist- more controversial, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are people who will just like outright, like tell me I'm stupid and ugly just because they don't like science. You know, there's like, (laughs) it happens all the time. No matter what I'm saying, it happens. It's fine. I mean, it's not fine. I'm fine with it though. But what I've learned is that essentially for every take you can have any perspective or opinion, specifically in the context of science, you know, like about what's happening in a certain thing, there's always a group of people who disagree with you. And like, it is the most important thing in their life to disagree with you. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Like I've had people come after me for saying that, like, this is a classic story that is horrible, but basically I made a video about um, shampoo and how there's this irritant, there's this chemical in shampoo that can irritate skin and people like chemical, this chemical side of TikTok apparently, which exists came after me and actually emailed my university when I was in my PhD and tried to get me kicked out of my PhD program for spreading misinformation the funny wow. end of the story is that my supervisor pulled her, me in her office and said, what the hell is going on? And I explained and she said, oh, yeah, no, my family uses shampoo without that ingredient because it irritates her skin. She's like, it's, okay. it's of course it's true. Like this is a, and it might have been like big shampoo coming after me. I'm who knows? I'm not very conspiratorial, but that one was kind of hard to explain. But anyways, you know, I have people I have people attacking me all the time and I've actually found that the whitelisting situation you described, that's probably as bad as it gets. And and also, like you said, on TikTok. So what I've noticed is like the people who know you or follow you generally aren't as likely to leave hateful comments, but people who have just seen you for the first time are extremely likely to leave hateful comments. And I think that is such a fascinating phenomenon. And this is anecdotal, you know, this is based on my personal experience, but I think it's so fascinating because to me, it does kind of represent something that's going on in the brain. So I I study empathy right now. And given I study empathy in mice, so it's not human beings, but we're studying the the neural circuits that that regulate (laughs) empathy. And so I've, you know, read up a a lot about empathy in, in human beings. And what I think is happening, and I actually am planning on writing up a little theory about this, is when we empathize with someone else, what we're really doing is we are stepping into their shoes and imagining sort of what it would feel to be in their situation. That is essentially the fundamentals of empathy is like sharing another person's experience. So if you see someone get, you know, their toe run over by a car, you might be like, oh, you know, that just the thought of that, right, kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. And there's actually some really cool research showing that when you view a picture of, for example, someone's like hand being stabbed by a needle or something, the brain areas that are activated by empathy for pain are actually some of the same brain areas that are activated by pain itself. So there's actually sort of this like neuroscientific mechanism that like you truly are in a way like sharing their experience. And that's probably why it feels uncomfortable for you to think of someone's foot getting hit by a car. Anyways, so when you're when you're standing by, you're sort of like taking on this person's experience in a way. But I think that that like natural process is blunted or like vanished a bit on social media because we're no longer interacting with human beings. We're interacting with a screen. We're interacting, especially in the context of like an advertisement where you've never seen this person before and you may be inclined to associate this this video you're watching with a brand or like some corporate like structure rather than a human being. And people are just like ruthless. It is so terrible and it is so interesting to me, but it's, yeah, it's really, really awful. And um, I think that's another one of those things that it's, it would be useful to be aware of because I think it's entirely possible to choose to step into empathy. And instead of like, for example, in your situation, you have an advertisement, it's whitelisted, you know, instead of saying, oh, you should get a real job, someone might look and say, 
wow, you know, actually like this is a person and she's making a living and, you know, I could, maybe that would be something I would be interested in doing if I had the opportunities, you know, maybe I shouldn't leave this comment. And I think that just by simply like embracing the potential for empathy and like taking a five second break to like choose to empathize with the person, you can completely, or at least partially probably block some of that impulse to just like leave behind a hateful comment. You know, it's, it's, it's really bad though. And I've seen some really awful things on other people's content where, you know, something pops up in my feed and I'll never actually forget this. One of my first experiences with TikTok, I was scrolling and I don't think the algorithm like knew me yet. It was like one of my very first times I used it. And there was a video of a girl and I don't know, she was probably 18. She was doing a dance and she was in a bikini, you know, and she was really thin. And the comments were just like horrible. It was like thousands of comments of people being like anorexia, like eat a meal. It was awful. And I, and I looked at it and I thought, I cannot believe that this is sitting here on the internet, this poor girl, I can't even imagine how she feels like it's still like, I think I might have even left a comment and was just like, hey, if you see these comments, like, please ignore them. Like, this is awful. Because it's just so awful to think about. And like, especially for creators who start for the first time posting and and experience that, um, I think it can be really tough. And I and I think it's important for people to be aware that like, if you were face to face with that person, they probably wouldn't say that thing, you know, they are interacting with the phone, not you. And, uh, and just ignoring it is the best thing you can do. So anyways, sorry, that was a long rant. For sure. No, it's, it's important to talk about because I mean, I think I really like what you said about just taking the second to think of them as a human, which I know is like so simple, it shouldn't even have to be said. (laughs) But most of the time, like if I ever get a hate comment, and then the person ends up deleting the comment after it's because I've reminded them in some way that I am a human, like one of the more nasty ones I got recently I went to their profile. It was like a very old white man. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I just replied to the comment, do you have a daughter? And then they immediately deleted their comment because they associated it with a human, you know, like Mm -hmm, what they said and a human they care about, you know. And so that's really important because I think we've all been like on the other side of at least wanting to say something nasty, like if we don't agree with it or whatever it is, especially and obviously no one likes to admit this, but especially when we're younger, there were times when I definitely like maybe it was a viral video on Facebook where I wasn't really thinking before I was posting comments. And it's, again, it comes down to that intention, where you are like, slowing down just for a second with everything you do can make every experience so much better. Yeah, super, super important with that. And then I think it has a little to do with projecting sometimes too, like especially in that video you might have seen. So yeah, it's just always like trying to dissociate it from your reality because this person does not know you <laughs> and is not thinking probably. <laughs> right. And it's, it's, it's also something that we see with like celebrities, you know, we've heard a lot of stories of like people send these like hateful, I think mm-hmm. historically there's always been like letters and stuff like that, like mailed to people's houses and people step out of a car and they get people start yelling things at them. And it's just like, there's this sort of weird human instinct to just like be hostile when there's like no humanity on the receiving end of it. Like I think with, with celebrities, it's like, yeah, of course we know it's a person, but it's a person that you will never truly interact with, you know, and it's just really awful. And and I don't know what exactly underlies that. Maybe it's that, you know, there's no threat of retaliation that you, you can say whatever you want to someone on the internet and they can't punch you in the face. Neither can a celebrity because they're, you know, so distant to you, but to the story you told about the, when you asked, do you have a daughter? I had a a video I made one time and this person made a reply video where they basically just like tore into me. They were like, this, (laughs) this guy is a narcissist and everybody knows that everyone in neuroscience is just a narcissist and he likes the blue check mark and he's just doing it for views and he's cherry picking data just like went off on me for like a a minute and a half. And um, just like, in my opinion, completely unwarranted. Like I said, the video was literally just, it was about Bob Saget having a brain injury like (laughs) like so unproblematic Um, but what's funny is I I actually commented on the video and I was just like I forget what I said something along the lines of hey you know I'm sorry that you felt this way you know whatever just like I am a human being and I exist and I watched this video and the person became so apologetic they they commented like three or four comments. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't think you would see this. Like I was just in a bad mood. And then they found me on Instagram and DM me like an entire page length <laughs> apology. And I think it's such an interesting thing. I, and it really clearly exemplifies what I'm talking about. Where like, if you simply take a second to like, imagine that there's a real human being on the other end of this, 
you can be empathic. And I think this is a, this was a kind person who just felt like they had a bad day. You know, I, I think they said that they had um, like an exam that day and it didn't go well or something. And they were just taking out their frustration on the internet and they thought I would probably never see it. And then as soon as I did, they felt horrible. And so I totally accepted their apology. And I was like, thank you so much for exemplifying that my theory may be correct. <laughs> yeah. And this is data that I will note down. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so I am really curious, actually, as we talk about this, because we, you know, you mentioned like old days Instagram when you would maybe post a travel picture and nothing much more. And now we fast forward to TikTok where people are doing more like face-to-face monologues and story times and things like that, where it is a little, it's at least a little bit more personal and connective. So do you think that like, do you think in the future hate comments could lessen as that enhances more connection and things like that? Or do you think this is a baseline, like hate comments are going to be around at max forever kind of thing? It's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, yeah, all theoretical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, cause I do talk about this stuff occasionally and people say, okay, so like, what do you, what's the solution? And mm-hmm. a question I get fairly often is if, if we go into like the metaverse, right. And it's virtual reality, do you think that will make it better? I don't think so. You know, I, I, cause so for example, anyone who's listening, who has ever played PlayStation or Xbox and gone into a call of duty lobby, you're talking yes. to the person, you're essentially on the phone with them. You can hear their voice. You know, you're not texting or any, whatever, or anything like that. And it's like some of the most, most ruthless trash talk oh, yeah. <laughs> on the face of the planet. You know, people are just cutthroat. And to me, you know, if, if you're willing to yell at a person, even though you can hear their voice, given it is like a competitive environment, it's kind of like sport environment. Mm-hmm. But, but that tells me that like being in virtual reality probably won't help anything. Maybe a solution mm-hmm. is some sort of training, even though it's like a silly thing. But even if like when you onboard it onto these apps, you open up TikTok for the first time, maybe there's just like a five slide, like everyone on here is a person. And imagine how you would feel if someone said something really mean, you know, like just mm-hmm. a tiny little thing like that to like elevate awareness could yeah, go that's a, a really great idea. Way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with that. Because I think and this is this is backpedaling a little bit, but I all have always thought like I've thought about past phases of myself where even if we're just thinking anxiety or depression, like even those things can be addictive, or at least I think, I don't know. And so people, some people are perpetual trolls, you know what I mean? Like they're like addicted Mm -hmm. to leaving these comments because it feels good for them. And so I do think even just like this second of people who are like downloading an app and maybe the app even has empathy and is like, hey, we don't want the people like you (laughs) on it. Like that really could be a big a big factor, I think, because I think about that a lot. Right. And I think what what a training like that, and I'm calling it a training, you know, what a kind of intervention like that might be maybe would do is it would create a at least improved culture of kindness, you know, and if 10% of the people who see that training become less likely to leave a mean comment, that improves the overall culture by 10%. That reduces the likelihood of getting a mean comment by 10%. And so hopefully, you know, that will, people will be more nice and then they'll see, oh, well, it actually is pretty nice when I don't get trashed on the internet, you know? And <laughs> But but you're right. I think there is a some sort of strange, positive experience for some people. I mean, it's like, it's the same reason why like Vanderpump Rules is like so popular and like everybody likes to watch these like true T or uh, Bravo, like, reality TV shows where everyone's screaming at each other because there's something strangely satisfying about experiencing conflict without having any of the blowback of it. You know, it's, it's fun to watch a couple argue for some people. I'm not one of those people when yeah. you're not directly involved and you don't have to experience the social pain of it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. very interesting to me. Super. Yeah. This has been, this whole conversation just has my brain feeling so energetic think it's been really, really valuable. I am curious just talking about the possible pros and cons of social media on the brain. Is there any like daily, weekly or monthly little brain exercises that you do or maybe like, you know, phone breaks, anything like that, that we as content creators or even just consumers on social media can use in order to improve our brain health? Yeah. So maybe not the like best intervention but there's actually a study <laughs> that showed it was actually it was a literally randomized controlled trial it was a clinical trial 
where they had half of the people take a one week break from social media and the other half not. And they found that those who took a one week break showed like improved well-being, like reduced depression, reduced anxiety. And, and these were all, they didn't explicitly say it, but I'm assuming these were all like consumers rather than creators. I have found that as a creator, being very considerate of myself is the best thing I can do. There's as a creator, there's this intense, never ending pressure to post, right? You you always feel like, you know, everyone kind of has a number in their head. For me, it's like two posts a week that I want to get up. And my posts are videos and I have to read the literature and you describe a scientific paper and they, you know, they take hours to make. And for the last three years, I've been doing that while doing my research. And, you know, it's, it's a lot. And recently I've decided, I'm like, you know what, I I have a lot going on in the lab. I'm trying to wrap up this project. I I have an upcoming move. I have all these things going on in life. And I was like, you know what? It's okay. I can take some time off. And I honestly, I haven't posted on social media in like probably like almost two months now. I haven't like even picked up my phone and filmed a video and it's probably not great for my channel, but it has been very good for my mental health. And I'm actually, I'm getting to the point now where I'm actually like approaching the level of being excited and invigorated about creating again. And, you know, so I think there's just, there's just always this pressure of like, I need to grow. I need to grow. If I stop posting, it's not going to do well and I'm going to lose followers. And it may be different for those like in your industry versus like if I usually this is the advice I give to like scientists who want to post. It's just like, (laughs) but the advice is basically don't worry about the frequency of posting, like do it when it's fun. And I think that it's very easy to shift from like a fun hobby to a full on like job level responsibility. And once that shift happens, it becomes very unpleasant instead of being pleasant. And I think if you can sort of like hover in the realm of like getting pleasure from it and also feeling like it's not overwhelming and like you're doing enough, then that's the sweet spot. But that's tough to find. So just be um, be gentle, be considerate of yourself. I really like that because I really had to find that exact balance that you were talking about. I like as someone who turned literally turned my just hobby passion into my job, I started to kind of resent the content creation process for a phase. And I read this quote, I can't, I think it was Naval Ravikant that said something like, you get your best ideas when you're bored, essentially. And it just made me realize that I just had to give myself the space to miss creating content a little bit. And so if you can strike the balance, I think, between that on kind of a weekly slash monthly basis of creating when it feels intuitive and good, that will yield consistency, you know, at least for me, like the more patience I have with myself, the more ideas I end up having anyway. So it's kind of like a cyclical thing for me. Absolutely. And there's there's got to be some neuroscience behind this, but I don't know it. But anecdotally, I've definitely experienced that when I am, you know, sitting down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend one hour just thinking about this topic and trying to find a solution to this problem or what do you yeah. know, like really intense focused thinking. I come up with something, but it's usually garbage. And <laughs> versus when I'm <laughs> in the car, you know, I'm like, okay, this is a waste of time. I get in the car, I start driving, going to the lab or something like that. And it hits me and I'm just like, beautiful. This is wonderful. And I, and I definitely think that burnout and stress, these things all really stifle creativity. Whereas being able to kind of just free think and mind wander and stuff and, and having less pressure definitely helps. I mean, and that's just anecdotally, but I've definitely seen it. I've, I've become much less creative, much less clever and witty. You know, like I used to come up with these things where I'd be like, oh yeah, like that's cool. I'm gonna make a video on that. Now I'm just like, I'm basically brain dead. Like nothing's happening up here. It's just like, it's just like duty. We have responsibility, like next thing on my checklist, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I need to get out of that. So Mm -hmm. I I hope that I get there soon. For sure. We all go through those phases. I think that's important too, to hear like two creators talking about the fact that we all go through those creative bursts and then the like, I am absolutely brain dead phases. And I've recently been in kind of a brain dead phase. And I will say, Again, leaning into the to the tuition, like you the intuition, like you said, almost all of my clients are the same way. So it's really interesting to hear that you're the same way too. And just stepping away from it really does help. It's so hard because it's not a tangible solution to be like, just clear your mind, <laughs> go mm-hmm. on a walk or something like that. But because it's hard to do that. But yeah, again, striking that balance totally. It's all about perspective, I think. And I think this comes down to a lot of things. You know, if you you notice suddenly that like the chair, your desk chair is like 
uncomfortable one day and you sit in it the next day and it's uncomfortable again, you aren't, you're not going to be ever able to use that desk chair happily again, right? <laughs> like you're going to focus on it until you get a new desk chair and you're, you know, all, it's just going to feel like, well, when I get a new desk chair, it's going to solve my problem. That's the solution. And I think human beings tend to do this with a lot of things. And it's all about perspective. If you also, if you looked at your desk chair and you're like, oh, it's actually just because I have like the back up too high and I'm too like upright and I need to recline a little bit and you fix it and then you're like, okay, good. You know, I think if, if we could do the same kind of thing with social media as creators, you know, we can view it as a persistent, never ending responsibility, or we can view it as a creative outlet that, that allows us to, you know, express ourselves and, and oh, how great we can also get followers and maybe there's sponsorships to be had, you know, and if, if you look at it that way, I think that it's great, but it is really hard to do that because there's so many pressures. Yeah. <laughs> It is. And once you start tying yourself in with the metrics, and that's what's hard too, we overthink our good ideas. Even the ideas we have on intuition, we're like, that's a good idea. And then we're like, okay, how do we make this hook perfect? And then all of a sudden the idea is shit. And you're like, damn it, I don't like this anymore. (laughs) I know. Yeah, you're at the will of the algorithms and the, you know, you have to make it fit within the platform. Yeah. And so that pressure really makes it harder. But this has been a really good conversation. I'm all my my brain is just spinning. I think a lot of people are going to have really good takeaways about social media specifically from this. I do have some guilty pleasure topics that I want to pick your brain on before I let you go. It has a little bit to do with social media, but psychedelics, because I know you love to talk about this. And one thing that did occur to me regarding social media and psychedelics is that, at least from my perception, there's so much more what seems solid information regarding that specific topic out there these days, even over the last few years. And I kind of feel like that's due to social media, but I don't know if that's just me being so outside of the science world. So I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, no, psychedelics are fully and vigorously being investigated within real scientific domains, including my research of many, many, many things out there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really fascinating. I think basically we're kind of discovering that, you know, these drugs were banned a long time ago. And, you know, there are some health risks, and they're not necessarily things you want to be taking every day at all. Definitely not that. But they could be really useful aids for psychotherapy in that, you know, certain psychiatric conditions like depression, PTSD, anxiety, things like that, you know, there's, there's use for these drugs. And uh, I could talk for a very long time about this, but I'll keep it brief and I'll just give a sort of summary here. I mean, basically the important thing for people to know is that it's not that like if like, okay, psilocybin, for example, is being explored for treatment resistant depression, let's say, or ketamine. That doesn't mean that you can sit on your couch with your friends or go to a rave and take these drugs and it will cure your depression. There's a lot of research happening right now investigating what is happening because there are a bunch of trials showing that if you give people these psychedelics that they feel a lot better after, but it's not in this sort of context of just like taking it and like, that's it. It's really paired with psychotherapy. And so the goal is that by taking something like psilocybin, psychedelic mushrooms, it will open you up, you know, you know, open your mind in a way where you'll be able to explore these ideas and see things in a new way. And when that experience is paired with a long therapy session with a counselor, you know, who who knows you, you have a relationship with them already, that really great substantial progress can be made in a very short time, literally in the over the course of one experience, one trip, versus something like giving SSRIs and pairing that with psychotherapy, which, you know, is a multi-week, multi-month, sometimes multi-year process. So it's it's of course very different from SSRIs in the way that they, you know, the experience and in some ways the way that they act in the brain, although there is some sort of overlap, but it's similar in that it's like, we're kind of taking like what you'd imagine a a good treatment for depression or PTSD would look like over the course of all these, this time, getting you to explore these feelings, getting you to unravel them and and embrace them and compressing it into a single, very intense experience or sometimes multiple experiences. So all in all, what I'm trying to say is basically it's, it's important that it's done in a clinical setting because if done at home, you know, it's it's not that the drug itself is going into the brain and, and doing something pharmacologically that it's like turning off the depression area. It's not that, at least so far, that's what we think. But it's going to be really fascinating to see how it progresses in the next couple of years because it's definitely ramping up and it is a very hot area of research. Yeah. 
So with them having been banned in the past, is there any pushback on this type of research right now? Or is it really kind of full-fledged ahead at this point? It's funny. I mean, the way this all kind of started was over the last like decade or so, a couple like really big clinical trials came out where you basically couldn't ignore them, where they were published in like really strong journals, you know, some of the best scientific journals in the world. And they had kind of undisputable, you know, results where not, not undisputable, but in that they, you know, they could be proven wrong, but undisputable in that it's like, whoa, that's a very strong effect. And I think people started to take notice. And I think that was kind of the inflection point where it could have either gone terribly or well. And over the following years, things just kept going great. And now we're at a point where I think there's like, there's really no looking back as far as like, is this really going to happen? Like right now, there's, you know, the most like scientifically sound, logical, traditional, like bureaucratic institutions are also jumping on and funding psychedelic research. And so there's really, there's really no pushback as far as I know. And as far as I can tell, the communities that have been like proponents of psychedelics as, as medical interventions for the last like 30, 40 years are just like rejoicing. You know, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do this. Yes. You see it my way now. Finally. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. And that's another of course, again, I'm going to tie it back to social media because that's my my world. But that's another one of those things that I don't think I would have nearly as much access to unbiased, I guess, information as I do if I didn't use social media. Like it's, and again, like yes, I could do, I could Google, I could do read the peer reviewed articles and stuff like that, but that's not accessible. So again, people like you really are making such a big difference on social media, and it's just it warms my heart. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been really, really fun to pick your brain. This has been awesome. Super valuable. Before I let you go, can you just let everyone know where they can find you? Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, I go by Dr. Brain, which is a combination of my first and last name. So my name is (laughs) Ben, B-E-N, Ryan, R-E-I-N. If you go to my website, which is my name, so (laughs) benryan.com, there's my, you can, you can find everything on there. There's my social media links, of course, but I also have my scientific papers on there without paywalls. I'm probably breaking some rules, but they're all there for download. If you're at all interested, I also (laughs) have, if you're a student in science, I have resources for students on there, like a template of a CV, which is like a resume or template of like a research poster. If you're presenting at a conference or stuff like that, there's all sorts of stuff on there. And you can also contact me through there as well. That is awesome. And for anyone who's looking for them, I actually will link his channels, his site, and everything in the show description for you. So thank you so much for everyone who listened, and I will see you back here for another episode next week. If you liked this episode, it would make my day to hear about it. Please don't hesitate to share your thoughts on Instagram and tag me at Gina Galliotto or shoot me a DM letting me know so I can continue sharing episodes you love. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the Social Spectrum podcast and leave a five-star review so we can stay in each other's worlds. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Until next time, friend.